others. Well, thank you all. I've, can you guys hear me in the back? All right, a little bit. Okay, I'll I'll try to be as uh, projective as I can. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about this last book, um, and it's good to be able to talk about something other than Scientology for a change. <laughs> I, um, this book had a really unusual beginning for me, or maybe for anybody. It started as a play. Um, a few years ago, in 2011, I got a call from Gerald Rafshoon, who was Jimmy Carter's media advisor when he was in the White House, and he asked if I would be interested in writing a play about Camp David. And um, his pitch was, when a born-again uh, Christian, a pious Muslim, and an Orthodox Jew go behind closed doors for 13 days and emerge with the first and most durable treaty in the Middle East. It was a pretty good pitch. And what occurred to me is, you know, this seemed perfect for me. I had lived in um, Atlanta when Jimmy Carter was governor and when he ran for president. And I lived in Cairo when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser died and Sadat became president. And I had spent, as a reporter, a considerable amount of time in Israel. So I felt like I knew the territory. Um, and, uh, but I still was a little puzzled about how this would work. So Jerry took me down to Plains, Georgia to meet the Carters. And uh, they live in an incredibly modest house in Plains. Uh, it's a little one-story ranch house uh, that they moved into when they returned to Plains in 1950 after Jimmy resigned from the Navy and took over the family peanut warehouse. And uh, they sat on this blue chinch couch with matching blue chinch curtains. And behind the couch was a painting of the room that we were in that Jimmy Carter had painted himself. And it looked just like an illustration from Goodnight Moon. <laughs> and at the time, I was trying to imagine who the cast would be of the play. I knew it would be Carter, Bagan, and Sadat, but would there be anybody else on the stage? And um, so Raf Shun says, uh, Mr. President, uh, Larry writes for the New Yorker, and he recently wrote an article about Scientology. Oh, I read that. I found it most intriguing. <laughs> and uh, Rosalind turns to him and says, since when did you start reading the New Yorker? <laughs> I thought, boy, I've got my fourth character. I needed somebody who could talk to Jimmy like that. Rosalind was born in the house next door to Jimmy Carter, and he's he turned 90 in October, so they've known each other for almost a century. And they still had that juicy relationship that I thought could be useful in the play. Another thing that was useful to me, um, in her memoir, uh, Rosalind writes that uh, she kept a diary at Camp David. Um, 200 typewritten pages, she said. And so while we were in that den uh, in Plains, I said, Mrs. Carter, I sure would like to have a look at that diary. Oh, it's around here somewhere. If you speak Southern, you know, don't ask anymore. But I kept pestering uh, Jerry, and, and finally he asked the president, and one day a manila envelope arrived in the mail. To, you know, all these typewritten pages, uh, Rosalind's diary. So I went through it, and it was very helpful in chartering the, charting the emotional course of those dramatic 13 days. And so I highlighted the stuff that was useful and made some marginal notes. And a month later, Jerry asked, uh, Larry, where is that diary? Rosalind wants it back. It's the only copy. So I had to write a really agonizing apology back to uh, the former first lady that you'll know at least of uh, what caught my interest. Now. One of the things about writing the book about Camp David, what was different from the play, it gave me the opportunity to study in a deep way the roots of this conflict, which keeps the Middle East in constant tumult and threatens the world order. So much tragedy has come from this region. So many wars, so many refugees, so much terrorism. 
and so little hope. It's common to think that, especially in the Middle East, peace is a fool's errand and that Arabs and Jews are eternal enemies and destined to be that throughout history. I think this belief is itself one of the most dangerous enemies of peace. As it happens, I'm the same age as Israel. I was born in 1947, the year that the United Nations decided to partition uh, the state into two, the, the mandated Palestine into two states. And since in my lifetime, I grew up in the segregated South. Uh, I went through the Texas public schools without ever having a black classmate or even a Latino classmate. And now we have a black man who's president. I grew up in a time of apartheid. And now younger people sometimes have a hard time understanding the reference. I grew up in a time of the Cold War. Uh, and now the Soviet Union has been rolled back into history. All of these things were things that would never change. They were all assumed to be things that would be a, a, an eternal feature of our, our human condition. So it's useful to look back at one moment in our recent history when peace was achieved. Not a total comprehensive peace, but a lasting and durable peace between two nations that had engaged in four wars in a single generation. In the 35 years since the Camp David Accords were signed, there hasn't been a single violation of the treaty on either side. This is the story of how that peace was made. In writing the book, I decided to impose three chronologies on the narrative. The first is the 13 agonizing days at Camp David. Uh, as, and then this, underneath that is the history of the modern Middle East as seen through the eyes of the men who were at Camp David, who in many ways created that history. And then finally, underneath that are the tectonic plates of the Bible and the Torah and the Quran, which dictate so much of modern history. The struggle for peace at Camp David is a testament to the enduring force of religion and the difficulty of shedding the mythologies that lure societies into conflict. Let's begin with the biblical concept of the promised land, the legend that it is at the root of this conflict. In Genesis, God speaks to Abraham in a dream pledging to give his descendants the land between the Nile and the Euphrates, a grant that today would include southern Turkey, western Iraq, portions of Saudi Arabia, all of Syria, Lebanon, uh, the West Bank, Israel, and even half of e Egypt. Later, God makes a similar pledge to Moses as he leads his people out of Egypt, although now the boundaries are from the Red Sea to the Euphrates. On another occasion, God tells uh, Moses that the promised land is actually Canaan, which corresponds much more closely to modern Israel. Defining borders in the Middle East has always been a problem, even for God. When the wandering Israelites reach the River Jordan, God draws Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo and shows him the promised land, which stretches out before him all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land about which I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord tells Moses. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over. And so Moses dies at the age of 120, having delivered his people out of Egypt and, and through the Sinai wilderness. God instructs Moses' successor, Joshua, to take the Israelites into the promised land, saying, every place you set foot, I have given you. However, the land is not vacant. The story of Joshua's conquest of the promised land is one of the most shocking events in the Bible. Cities are burned to the ground, populations wiped out, every man, woman, child, even the livestock slaughtered all on the orders of the Lord to kill every living thing. In that way, the children of Israel finally came in possession of the promised land. 
One of the many problems with this biblical account is that during the time of Exodus, all of this territory was actually a part of the ancient Egyptian empire. The 31 kings that the Bible tells us Joshua slew, they were all vassals of Egypt, paying tribute to them, uh, to the Pharaoh before, during, and after the supposed Israelite invasion. From the earliest times, the Egyptian people have shown a talent for bureaucracy, and they kept extensive records. There's no historical or archaeological evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. By, the Bible records that 603,550 Israelite men above the age of 20, plus their wives and children and various hangers-on, a horde estimated to be about 2 million people wandered in the Sinai for 40 years on their journey to the Promised Land. Marching 10 abreast, they would have stretched for 150 miles, which is actually wider than the Sinai Peninsula. There's no evidence that it happened either. Archaeologists have excavated most of the cities Joshua is said to have raised. Many of them were either not inhabited at the time or were not destroyed. On the other hand, there are abundant remains of Egyptian military outposts and administrative centers that testify to the imperial rule of one of the most powerful empires of the ancient world. So even if the exodus did occur in some fashion, the Israelites were making a journey from one part of Egypt to another. The Bible doesn't mention this. The most likely explanation for the origin of the Israelites is that they were themselves the Canaanites. DNA studies have shown that the Jews and the Palestinians are closely related, both descending from the Canaanites. Genetically, they are the same people. Both have been in the same place for thousands of years. But the three men who would meet at Camp David in September 1978 accepted the biblical account as believers in the Abrahamic religions that do all over the world. Even Sadat uh, believed that God had chosen the Jews and led them to the Promised Land, but as a Muslim, he also believed that the Jews had broken their covenant with the Lord and he had turned against them. Now, I know that Many of you are students of the Middle East and you're very familiar with the history of the modern Middle East and I hope you'll forgive me for a moment if I offer a little prelude of the events that led up to Camp David. In November 1947, the UN voted to partition the former Ottoman province of Palestine into two parts, one to be a Jewish state and the other to be set aside for the Palestinians. The following May, the state of Israel came into being along with its doomed twin, Palestine. Five Arab armies immediately attacked. It wasn't just Israel they were attacking. It was a land grab for Palestine. Jordan took the West Bank, Egypt took Gaza, and Israel took the rest. So much for Palestine. In 1956, after Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal, Israel conspired with England and France to attack Egypt and take over the canal. Eisenhower forced the return of the Sinai to Egypt. That was the end of, Egypt, of, Israel, of England and France as world powers. And it consolidated in the minds of Arabs the idea that Israel is an outpost of Western colonialism. Another feature of that war was that the United States, for better or worse, took on the Middle East portfolio. In 1967, Nasser demanded that UN peacekeepers be removed from the Sinai and cut off access to the Straits of Tehran, which Israel considered acts of war. In June, Israel attacked and wiped out three Arab armies in six days. Israel seized the West Bank, including the old city of Jerusalem, which had been under Jordanian control since 1948. It also took the Golan Heights from Syria, as well as the Sinai Peninsula, including Gaza from Egypt. It tripled the size 
of Israel, adding a million and a half Arabs. At the time, there were only two million Jews in Israel. Now, let me speak a minute about the psychological effect of that 1967 war. Before the war, Israel lived in fear of outright annihilation. People were fleeing the country. Uh, gas masks were passed around. There were trenches dug in city parks for the mass graves that they expected to be needed. But in the space of an hour, the Egyptian Air Force was wiped out. We call it the Six-Day War, but really a 60-minute war would be more appropriate because after that, it was just a mopping up exercise. Israel's lightning victory excited Jews all over the world. They began immigrating into Israel in large numbers, reversing the flow, believing that prophecy was being fulfilled. It wasn't just Jews that believed that. Many Christians did as well. The consolidation of Israel hearkened to the end of days when the Messiah will return. The thrill of rapture was in the air. For many Muslims, the Six-Day War had a different message. It meant that God had turned against them. And they asked themselves, why? And the answer for many of them was, we weren't pious enough. Radical Islam was stirred into life and began to express itself in acts of terror. After the Six-Day War, the United Nations passed Resolution 242, which Israel signed. It states that Israel would withdraw from territories occupied during the 1967 war. It doesn't say all territories, and it doesn't say the territories. It just says territories, leaving open the idea that the borders are negotiable, except that serious negotiations never took place. Very quickly, Israeli settlements began to spring up in the occupied territories in Golan, in the East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in Sinai. If there's one great lesson to be learned from studying the wars of the Middle East, it is that neither victory nor defeat brings peace. One, one war merely lays the groundwork for the next one. In October 1973, on Yom Kippur, Egypt stunned Israel by sending its vast army across the Suez Canal. Simultaneously, Syria attacked, seeking to recapture Golan. Israel was caught by surprise. Within 24 hours, Israel lost 200 tanks, 35 aircraft, several hundred soldiers killed. By the following day, the losses had doubled. In desperation, Israel turned to the United, Nation, United States for help. Nixon agreed to resupply the Israeli Defense Forces just as the Soviets were beginning to resupply the Arab armies. Israel armed its nuclear weapons in case of an overwhelming defeat. But Israeli forces recovered and broke through Egyptian lines crossing the Suez Canal and trapping the Egyptian Third Army in the Sinai Desert. The Soviets put three airborne divisions on alert and sent a massive naval flotilla into the neighborhood. Nixon is Watergate, he's drunk. He placed American forces on a nuclear alert. The superpowers were closer to a nuclear war than any time since the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It took very skillful negotiation by Henry Kissinger to disentangle the superpower train wreck. This was the story of the first 30 years of Israel's existence, near constant war with its neighbors, but especially with Egypt, the only country in the neighborhood that actually posed a real threat to Israel's existence. Now let's take a look at the three men who would meet at Camp David. Jimmy Carter was a one-term governor of Georgia when he was elected president in 1976. The Carters were the only white family in a little South Georgia town called Archery near Plains. The other 55 families were all black. The only Jew that Jimmy Carter knew when he was growing up with his uncle, Louis Bronstein, an insurance salesman in Chattanooga, 
who could chin himself with one hand, which made a huge impression on little Jimmy Carter. The first time he met an Arab, he was governor and he went to the Daytona 500 and there was one, uh, an Arab sitting in his box. Uh, he lost that first race to, uh, as governor to Lester Maddox, one of the most racist figures in Georgia's history. Um, I, when I was living in Georgia at the time, and, and uh, Lester Maddox was famous for uh, driving, he had a restaurant called a Pickwick, and uh, he chased black customers out of his restaurant with an ax handle and a pistol. And the other thing that made him notable is he could ride a bicycle backward, which would apparently qualified you for high office in Georgia at the time, uh, but it was very impressive. Uh, this was um, the lowest point in, in Jimmy Carter's political career, and it's the period of time when he was born again. Uh, he ran for governor again, and his biggest supporter was an Iranian Jew named David Ribham, a, a businessman from Savannah, who was also a pilot, and he would fly Jimmy across the state of Georgia and, um, and they flew around so much that Jimmy learned how to fly the plane while Rabham took naps. And one time, Jimmy was flying the plane and the engine died. And uh, uh, so he nudges David and says, David, wake up. And still, David, David, wake up. What's wrong? We're out of gas. And so Rabham says, then we're going to crash. And he let that sit there for a moment. And then he opened up the spare gas tank. <laughs> Not a lot of people tease Jimmy Carter. So when Carter cooled off, um, he said to Rabham, um, you know, the campaign is coming to an end. It appears that I'm going to be victorious, and no one has been a bigger supporter to me than you. What can I do for you when I become governor? And he said, Jimmy, I don't need anything from you. I just want you to tell the people of Georgia that is time to get rid of this millstone of racism that has hung around our necks. And so Jimmy reached into the glove compartment or whatever you call it on an airplane, and there was a flight map, and he wrote, I say to you that the time for racial discrimination is over. And he showed it to Rabham, and he said, if I am elected, I will say this at my inauguration. And Rabham said, sign it. <laughs> So he signed it and he said it, and those words got him on the cover of Time magazine. It was such an unusual sentiment for a white uh, politician in the South at the time. It also planted dreams of presidential thoughts in his head. In 1973, when Carter was considering his race for president, he and Rosalind went to the Holy Land. You can always tell when somebody's about to run for president. Um, and uh, Golda Meir was the prime minister at the time, and she lent them a station wagon. And they went all around Israel and the West Bank, and um, uh, they got to swim in the River Jordan, which was very meaningful to both of them. And Carter was already impressed by the settlers. There were only 1,500 on the West Bank, he estimated, but he could already tell that they were going to pose a formidable threat to peace. And he mentioned this to Golda Meir when he returned the station wagon. And he also said um, that um, in the Bible, whenever the, you know, he was shocked at how secular the settlers were back then. He said that whenever the Jews turn against God, they are defeated militarily and politically. And Golda Meir laughed in his face. This is the governor of Georgia telling her that. Uh, and a few months later, Sadat crossed the canal with his vast army, and, and Golda Meir had to step down. Carter came home determined what, to do whatever he could to help the nation of Israel. And four years later, he was sitting in the Oval Office. He believed that God had placed him in that high office to bring peace in the Middle East. Walter Mondale, his vice president, told me how shocked he was that on his very first day in office, Carter called him in and told him one of his top priorities was a comprehensive peace in the Middle East. None of his advisors encouraged this wild idea. He began meeting with leaders in the middle of the Middle East with a view to convening a peace conference in Geneva, and he was 
really unimpressed with the cast of characters who came through the Oval Office until Anwar Sadat appeared. They fell in love. Uh, Carter would often say that he loved Anwar Sadat. It's not diplomatic language. Uh, and I've thought a lot about uh, this relationship, this powerful friendship. And, you know, they both grew up in very rural areas. Uh, the little village in the Nile Delta that Anwar Sadat grew up in, Mit Abakum, was not a whole lot different from archery, the, the red dirt uh, farm that uh, Carter grew up plowing uh, barefoot behind a mule, just as Sadat plow, plowed barefoot behind a water buffalo. I think it also meant something to Carter that Sadat was black. Uh, his mother was the daughter of, a, of an African slave. And, and race is a factor in Egypt as well. So his darkness was always something that played against him in Egypt, but I think stirred feelings uh, in Carter. Um, now, Carter was a, I mean, Sadat was a fascinating man, a man full of wild contradictions. Uh, when he was 12 years old, Mahatma Gandhi passed through the Suez Canal on his way to London to negotiate the fate of India. Sadat idolized this small brown man who could change, who could overthrow an empire. So he took off his clothes and started dressing in an apron and went up on a, he, he built a spindle and went on the roof of his house and started spinning thread. Um, so he went that far in his adoration of Gandhi. But another person he idolized was Adolf Hitler. It's not entirely unprecedented. Uh, many Egyptians at the time felt that the Germans were an ally because they were fighting the British as they were fighting the British occupation. But even years later, after the war, after 10 million people are dead, uh, Sadat wrote a peon to Hitler. Uh, it, when, he was, when the war was going on and, and Sadat was 23 years old, a little, uh, he was a signals officer in the Egyptian army, he, um, he wrote a letter to General Erwin Rommel, one of the most famous military people in history, uh, who was then in northern Egypt uh, and uh, with the famous Panzer Corps. And uh, the 23-year-old uh, Captain uh, Anwar Sadat proposed that uh, that he would take the Egyptian army and, and they would fight against the, uh, the, they would hold up the British in, in, uh, in Cairo and keep them from coming to reinforce them. And he sent a friend to deliver the message in a, in a plane to fly up to Al Alamein. Well, he sent his friend in a British plane and the Germans shot it down, <laughs> so that plan didn't go anywhere. He collaborated with a couple of Nazi spies and, um, and that got him in, prison for a while. He joined uh, an assassination group. He called it his murder society. And mainly what they did was try to pick off uh, drunken uh, British soldiers at night on the streets of Cairo. But Sadat had bigger plans. And he, he wanted to assassinate the prime minister. And he had tried that on several occasions. He, he did succeed in killing another government official, but the prime minister lived to a ripe old age. Sadat spent five years in prison before escaping and eventually returned to the army and participated in the 1952 coup by the military officers. I was living in Cairo when Nasser died and, and I, I recall, um, for one thing, Nasser, it's hard to compare uh, a figure in modern American political history with Kamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt and the Arab world is a little like Lincoln or something like, you know, that kind of historic figure in, in the minds of many Arabs. Um, when he died, the city was, it was eerie. Uh, I mean, you know what ululating is? They were, you know, that, that sound that Arab women make. It was, that's how we got the news. There was just this wave of ululation. And for three days, the city was just, you know, a, a city was constantly clogged with traffic and it was empty. And then on the third day, the, 
the funeral began, and I remember watching it from the roof of our apartment. And it began on the, crossing the Casarel Neal Bridge, and they had the, there were all these world leaders in the army in front, the police with batons beating a path through the people. It was a savage, strange scene. And in the middle of this comes Anwar Sadat, uh, a man who had missed the revolution because he was at the movies, uh, a double feature, but he, he missed the revolution. Nobody thought that he would be anybody. They thought the first strong wind would blow him away. But within a year, he had rounded up all of Nasser's cronies and thrown them in prison. Uh, there were, as I said, there, you, know, the, you know, we had no diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. There were only a couple of hundred Americans um, in, in the country. But there were thousands of Soviets, mainly Russians. And uh, Sadat expelled them. It was one of America's greatest victories in the Cold War. And Kissinger was, why did he do this? He asked for nothing in return. It was the most puzzling event. Nobody could make heads or tails of this guy. And then he did something that was stunning. In the middle of a speech to Egyptian parliament, he put down his pages and he said, I would go anywhere to the ends of the earth, even to Israel, to the Knesset, to speak to them if it would save the life of one more Egyptian soldier. Nobody believed it. People applauded, even Yasser Arafat, who was there, applauded. It wasn't even reported in the newspapers because it was so unlikely. But the news got out, and uh, 10 days later, uh, Sadat's airplane is circling over Tel Aviv. Now, put yourself in the minds of the Israelis at this moment. Here is their biggest enemy, uh, a man who had attacked them and, and terrified the country of Israel to the point they really thought they might be wiped out. And he's coming pretty much unbidden to talk to the Israelis. Is he really in the plane? There was a lot of talk that it might be full of terrorists or bombs. Uh, Ben-Gurion Airport was ringed with snipers. Uh, nobody knew what to expect. Uh, the Israeli National Orchestra didn't know how to play the Egyptian National Anthem, so they had to listen to Radio Cairo to kind of get the gist of it. Uh, and so all of the leaders of, you know, Israeli politics uh, were waiting there on the tarmac, and the plane lands, and it's Sadat. And he gets off the plane, and uh, he embraces Golda Meir, he jokes with Ariel Sharon, the country was beside itself. And it seemed like peace was really at hand. Uh, but Sadat came home empty-handed from that historic overture. And in part, that was because of Menachem Begin, uh, the recently elected Israeli prime minister. This is a man whose entire political career was devoted to expanding the land of Israel. Begin was born in a little Polish town called Brisk. His first memory was of Polish soldiers flogging a Jew in a public park. When the Nazis invaded Poland, 5,000 Jews in Brisk were rounded up and executed. Begin's mother was ill in the hospital with pneumonia, and the Nazis went through the hospital wards murdering the patients in their beds. His father was tied up, his pockets filled with rocks and drowned in the river Bug. Begin was hiding in Lithuania when this occurred. And he spent two years in Soviet prisons before Stalin freed all the, all the Poles to fight the Nazis. The Jewish unit that Begin joined was sent to Palestine. And while he was there, he became head of Irgun which was a terrorist organization fighting the British at the time. In 1946, Begin's group blew up the King David Hotel. It was, at the time, the finest hotel in the Middle East. A portion of this hotel was serving as the nerve center for the British mandate. 91 people were killed. As a terrorist, Begin was formidable. Ergun struck again and again, sometimes more than once a day. 
And he had a talent for making news. He was bidding, as modern terrorists do, for the headlines in Western countries. Uh, for instance, when, uh, when the British flogged some Jews uh, for some punishment, Begin had uh, several uh, British officers captured and flogged as well. This went headlines all over the world. And then when the British executed three convicted terrorists, Begin captured three, uh, two, excuse me, two British officers and hanged them as well and booby-trapped their bodies. These kinds of actions broke the spirit of the British forces. And, um, and it was at that point they decided to withdraw uh, from the mandated Palestine and turn it over to the UN. And the precedent that, uh, that Begin established uh, is something that gives you pause as a student of terror uh, because this was an instance where it really did work. In 1948, while Israel was fighting for its independence, Ergun tro troops attacked a little Palestinian village called Deir Yassin. Now, this was a peaceful village. It had signed a non-aggression pact with its ultra-Orthodox neighbors. But it stood above a strategic approach to the city of Jerusalem, and Begin determined that it had to be taken. Uh, he says that there was a sound truck that was sent in to warn everybody to flee, but the truck fell into a ditch, and nobody heard the warning. There was some resistance when the Ergun and, and, and others came into the city, so the Ergunists went through houses throwing grenades into the windows and blowing up the houses with dynamite. It was a massacre. Women and children after the slaughter were placed on trucks and paraded through Jerusalem. Twenty Arab male survivors were taken to a quarry and shot. There were Palestinians leaving before Deir Yassin, but after that, 700,000 Palestinians fled, convinced that Deir Yassin could happen to them. Begin was denounced all over the world, in particular by Jews. When he came to America later that year, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt signed a petition against him in the New York Times. Even in Israel, Begin was seen as an extremist, a marginal figure on the sidelines of Israeli politics. David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, called him a fascist and a racist who wanted to kill all the Arabs. But after 1973, when Sadat's forces crossed the canal, Israelis began to look upon Begin as that kind of strong man who might recapture the sense of invulnerability that Israel had enjoyed before the Six-Day War. So these were the th three men who came to Camp David while the wounds of war were still fresh. Are there lessons that we can learn from the Camp David summit today? I will offer several that I think will help frame our current failed efforts. First of all, there are no perfect partners for peace. Look at the cast of characters who came to Camp David. An assassin and a terrorist leader brought together by a weak and unpopular president. It would be hard to imagine three more unlikely partners for peace. But one thing these three men had in common was political courage. Timing isn't everything. It's true that the 1973 Yom Kippur War shook Israel out of its reverie of unchallenged dominance and changed the political context, but the surprise attack that Sadat engineered only reinforced the need in the minds of many Israelis to hold on to the Sinai Peninsula as a strategic buffer against Egyptian armies. It had been a concourse for Egyptian armies for, for centuries. Two of, uh, for Sadat, um, Egypt, in, in Egypt, Sadat was practically alone in his belief that Israel, peace with Israel was possible or even desirable. Two of his foreign ministers resigned when he went to Jerusalem, and a third resigned at Camp David. Uh, <laughs> one of the days on Camp David, Carter 
he saw how angry the Egyptian delegation was at their own leader. Uh, and he woke up in the middle of the night convinced that Sadat was going to be assassinated at Camp David by his own delegation. He, he woke up uh, Brzezinski, his national security advisor, who was running around at four in the morning trying to reinforce the security around Sadat's cabin. Uh, of course, it was a prelude. Uh, and it's true that Sadat signed his death warrant at Camp David. Carter had his own political troubles. He was struggling with a faltering economy, double-digit inflation. The prime rate was 20%. The Shah was going down. He was in the middle of midterm congressional elections. His political advisors were unanimously opposed to this quixotic attempt to bring peace when there were so many problems at home. The final lesson I think that we can draw from Camp David is that America plays a crucial role. Egypt and Israel simply couldn't make peace with each other. After the fifth day of the summit, Carter realized that he would have to produce an American plan that would be a fair resolution to the conflict. He made it clear to both men that their relationship with the United States was on the line. By taking an aggressive stance as a full partner to the negotiations, Carter allowed both sides to make concessions to the United States they were unwilling or unable to make to each other. These are some of the lessons of Camp David. But there are other lessons in his failure as well. There are, the Accords sketch out two parts of the, of the peace. One is the peace between Egypt and Israel. And, and as I said, it hasn't been violated in 35 years. The other part of the Accords is the peace between the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, there were no Palestinians present at Camp David. But every attempt at peace since then has been an effort to fulfill the unfulfilled promise of that second part of Camp David. If there is a final lesson, peace requires painful compromises that so far neither side has been willing to make. And yet the alternative is unending strife. If there's one final lesson of Camp David, it is that peace is worth that price. Thank you very much. And I, I did promise to take some questions and would be happy to do so if you have any. Yes, sir, right here. I, you know, we, I often get this question about the money, and uh, it's true that we, we give Israel $3 billion a year, and, and Egypt gets a billion and a half, and the Palestinians get half, half, $500 million. That's pretty much, you know, part of the financial legacy of, of Camp David. Uh, first of all, it's a lot cheaper than war, and, uh, you know, so I think it's, and I don't think that either of these parties, uh, I don't think you could have paid them to make peace. It's, a, it's an adjunct to something they had both, they both had a reason to make peace. It's true that Egypt could not defeat Israel militarily, but it's also true that these, the Israelis couldn't operate in the Middle East with w one hand constantly on, you know, protecting itself against Egypt. So, and in some, some analysts think that this was actually kind of a bad deal for other countries in the region because right after uh, that, uh, you know, the Israelis went into southern Lebanon. And it was a catastrophe for the Israelis. Um, but they, they wouldn't have done so without that peace with Egypt. But I don't think money really enters into it. 
it's not enough money to transform the region. And, uh, and in my opinion, if it plays a factor in, in keeping the peace, it's well worth the price. Yes, Bobby. Uh, if you didn't hear the question, is you know, is the U.S. still able to play that kind of role, uh, or are we less um, potent in the region than we were? I. It's certainly true that in some ways that our influence has declined, but it's not the case that another power has risen in its place, and and there's a vacancy in that spot, which is the trusted broker that could bring both of these parties together, and you know we. We can play that role. Uh, I, you know, e Europe has tried many times, and you know, the Oslo Accords and so on, there have been repeated attempts uh, by other powers. But I, I think the U.S., yeah, I don't know, Bobby, I, I would have to hedge on this a little bit because we could make the difference if we really dedicated ourselves to doing it. But that's where I don't see it happening. And it's that lack of will, I think, that is, uh, that is keeping us from fulfilling that role. It's true that you can't force people to make peace. And these are very aggrieved parties. But they, just like the, uh, the Israelis and the Egyptians, they, you know, each, the Palestinians and the Israelis have an interest in making peace. If you play out where this is going, in my opinion, uh, you know, the, this is headed for a kind of disaster. And, you know, what I see happening is the end of the two-state solution with uh, is Israeli forces demanding to be along the Jordan. So they have enclosed the West Bank and continually filling in uh, spaces in between different Palestinian population centers so that what you will get eventually is half a dozen Gazas. That's where it seems to be going, in my, in my opinion. And I think this is a recipe for real disaster. And um, so I think that you know, I, if, if, uh, if people agree with me in that region, uh, then I think they have a very strong reason to make peace. It's just so hard to make the political compromises domestically that each side would have to make in order to come to an agreement that would endure. Yes. The question was the, you know, the media blackout at Camp David and and uh, you know the fact that these leaders were all behind closed doors really it was, it was nobody got any news out of there. It was fascinating because the press was all camped down the road and they were only brought in one evening. Uh, there was a uh, military parade and, uh, and uh, so the press came in to see the, the, uh, the, it was a silent, green silent drill and they got to see the leader sitting in the bleachers and it was a low point in the, in the talks but um, then they were all bussed out except for one person they couldn't find, Barbara Walters. Uh, she, she was finally discovered hiding in a, in, in a toilet in the ladies' room, uh, hoping to get an exclusive. But they, that's how hard it was to get the news. I, I don't think it's impossible to imagine that that could happen again. Um, if you look at the, the Iran talks, they've, you know, the truth is a lot of the material that came when it was finally revealed what the terms were, there were some big surprises in there. So uh, even under those circumstances, I think that if people have an interest in keeping things quiet, it can be done. Oh, well, yes, sir, way back. What do you think the role of Iran is not The role of what? I'm sorry. Iran? Oh, Iran. You know, uh, there's an interesting 
book uh, that uh, I read and, and, and blurbed um, uh, by Yossi Alfer that's just out called Israel and the Periphery or something like that. And, and it's, a, it's a look at, he was in Mossad and at a time when um, Israel's allies uh, in the region were Turkey and Iran. Uh, Israel's strategy at the time was to try to find the non-Arab uh, entities in the region and make alliances with them. And strategically, they had a lot in common. One thing you get from studying the Middle East is how volatile these kinds of arrangements are. And so the present-day Iran uh, could certainly, you know, especially given the fluidity of the situation now, it could revolve into a different category. I think Iran has an interest in coming into the world community and um, it's deathly afraid mainly of its Arab neighbors. Um, and in that sense, Israel and Iran are natural allies. Uh, of course the thing that stands in the way is the Palestinians. And this is another reason I think that Israel has a real incentive to try to end this problem for once and all. Yes, sir. Uh, my my uh, thoughts about the trends in the Middle East right now. Uh, one lesson I've learned from living in the Middle East is that things can always get worse. <laughs> and just when you think, oh no, you know, it, 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 it. here are the things that that I observe. I, ISIS is a rather small phenomenon. Its strength is a is an is an illustration of how weak the Arab states are. Uh, and, you know, the fact that the Iraqi army would crumble in the face of a couple of thousand irregulars uh, is a, is, it's not a demonstration of the strength or the commitment of fanatical jihadists. It is a, an illustration of the corruption and the incompetence and, and the lack of allegiance uh, of, the, of the Iraqi army, which is a reflection of the state itself. And, Syria, uh, you know, Syria is just as Iraq was ruled by an unpopular dictator who represented a minority, so was Syria and is still. But uh, those contradictions are bound to elicit uh, real problems when it comes to fighting for your country. You know, if you are a young Sunni in Syria, and you've been oppressed by the Alawite regime ever since you were born, why would you fight for it? So it makes it really difficult. Uh, now, people join ISIS and other Qaeda affiliated groups because of many reasons. And the way I think of it is that there is a river of despair that runs through the Muslim world and especially through the Arab countries. Uh, and there are many tributaries. There is poverty, but poverty alone doesn't cause terrorism. There is political uh, weakness on the part of ordinary citizens who have no voice in their government. But that alone doesn't uh, cause terrorism. Uh, there is gender apartheid. Um, there's the, you know, and a related thing is that young men simply uh, can't afford to get married in, in many of these countries. Um, and I always think that, you know, I, when I was living in Saudi Arabia, um, I, my, the, the gender apartheid was so stark and it occurred to me that, you know, you know, a lot of growing up for young men, the civilization process is learning how to please girls. And, you know, you can't be a terrorist if your girlfriend won't let you. 
so this, this is, I think, a, it removes a fundamental stumbling block on that road. Um, so there are many, you know, unemployment, lack of education, lack of access to opportunities, uh, and of course, uh, fanatical religions uh, being propagated everywhere you look. So all of these things contribute to the river of despair. Singly, they may not be the cause. Together, they form a powerful river that moves through the souls of so many young people, and especially young men, who feel isolated, powerless, and here comes Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and it gives them the opportunity to make history. When you look at the demographics in the Middle East, there are more and more of those young people coming into a jobless market with poor education opportunities. And that's what troubles me when I look down the road. Yes, sir. Well, I don't, you know, this is a hypothetical about how Egypt would be without, without Camp David, but my, my guess is that it would have been much more Islamist much quicker um, in reaction to uh, the Israeli presence and, uh, and the pernicious third parties, you know, the terrorists and so on, sponsored by Egypt at a much higher level. It wouldn't be out of the question that there would be other kinds of weapons developed, uh, and a lot more coordination with Arab neighbors, uh, an intense focus on, uh, on destroying Israel. I, I, if you take the Camp David Accords out of the Middle East right now, it just looks like, you know, it looks bad. You know, I don't think we would, I, I think we'd be in a far worse situation. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, they, first of all, uh, Jimmy Carter has many qualities, but he's not funny. Um, and um, so, but I, I will tell you something that I, I thought, uh, one of the most remarkable surprises to me about studying Camp David is that it was an accident, and it was brought about by a madman. And it's almost like you would expect this in the Middle East, but um, there was a man named uh, Hassan al-Dahami, and he was uh, Sadat's spiritual advisor. Not just that, he had been a general and he had been the head of intelligence, which in Egyptian context means he had pretty dirty hands. Uh, but he was a Sufi mystic, and uh, he would he would stop a conversation to say hello to the angel Gabriel or have a conversation with the prophet Muhammad who's right here, you know, and, and uh, he was a very stout, fit man with a commanding presence. And uh, on the first day of Camp David, he, he was holding court uh, at lunch. Uh, Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State, and a number of other people were sitting around the table and he was telling them how he had such total control over every aspect of his body that he could even stop his heart from beating on command. And um, he said that, you know, when he was ambassador to Austria, he went for his physical and the doctor said, General Tahami, I can't help you, you're dead. Oh, I forgot to turn on my heart. Um, so this guy, and Megan's cardiologist happened to be sitting nearby and he edged over into the conversation. So this was a lunatic. And, um, and, but he had Sadat's trust for whatever reason. Uh, I think Sadat might have been secretly a Sufi and that, you know, they had, you know, this kind of alliance. But um, anyway, the king, uh, King Hassan II of Morocco, invited uh, the Israelis and the Egyptians long before Camp David to meet in Morocco secretly and see if they could come to some kind of agreement. 
So Sadat sent Tohani, and the Israelis sent Moshe Dayan, uh, the Minister of Defense, and perhaps the most legendary warrior in Israel's history, and the most feared person in the minds of Arabs all over the world. And uh, he actually went dis in disguise with a beatnik wig and, and sunglasses to cover up his eye patch. And so he, and Tahami conceives the idea that he's the Antichrist. And, and Diane says, sir, I am not that man. <laughs> but uh, Tahami came home from Morocco and told Sadat, I have Sinai for you, and Jerusalem as well. And, um, and so Sadat believed him. And so when he made that statement about going to Jerusalem, he thought the deal was in the bag. And so he went to Jerusalem, the eyes of the world were on every network in the world, you know, covering this. The, the, and he gets to, you know, gets to uh, Israel and he, he confronts uh, Diane and Begin. And Diane says, I, n I never said that. It was too late to walk it back. So, you know, the whole thing would not have occurred, I think, if, if Hassan Tuhami hadn't had this delusional moment when he came back and told Anwar Sadat, pieces at hand. And perhaps it takes a little madness. Uh, yes, ma'am. Well, one thing about this piece, why does it held? It's, it's a really good piece. In, in, in both parties have an interest in it, but it's carefully structured, and you know the violations are clearly monitored, and you know it, it's a kind of peace treaty that I think could serve as a model. Um, there are there are you know uh, what you would call uh, ambi ambiguous phrases in there that were thrown in. Um, you know, more or less to bridge differences that couldn't be bridged. And, um, and it was a, you know, up until the last minute, uh, the 13th day, it wasn't clear. Carter thought he had everything in hand. And um, that night, the, you know, the net, Rafshun had already alerted the networks. They were going to preempt the Emmys. And uh, they were setting up the East Room of the White House. And there was a little side letter. You know, treaties like this often come adorned with side letters, which state the, the views of each party on things that we don't really agree on. And one of the side letters was about Jerusalem. And each of the parties wrote a letter about Jerusalem. And uh, the American position was, Jerusalem is occupied territory. And that was our position going back through several administrations uh, and had been stated repeatedly. So Carter included this letter quoting these UN ambassadors uh, about the American status of Jerusalem, American position on it. And Begin gets the letter on Sunday morning and uh, he tells Carter that he has to withdraw this letter. We cannot stand it. It's not just Begin. The whole Israeli delegation was inflamed by this. And uh, Carter was caught short. You know, it, it hasn't anything to do with the peace treaty. It's just a letter restating American policy. Nonetheless, if you don't withdraw it, uh, the signing is off. And, and Carter said, I can't. I promised Sadat. And so Begin said, then it's over. And Carter walked back to his cabin. It was, it was the nadir of, of his career and perhaps of his life. I mean, the talks were not only a failure, they were a fiasco. And uh, it turned out that uh, both of the president, President Sadat and, and, and Prime Minister Begin had asked for a photograph of the three men on the porch of the Aspen Lodge, the presidential lodge, and uh, for their grandchildren. And uh, Carter had thoughtfully signed each of them. Uh, Begin had eight grandchildren, and he signed each of them their personalized their name and signed it, love, Jimmy Carter. And he, but, you know, his secretary gave him the envelope and, and said, you know, you have to take these over to the prime minister. He never wanted to see Menachem Begin again. He hated him. And it was mutual. And, but it, he had to do this. So he walked over to Begin's cabin. And, you know, Begin was frigid. 
and um, Mr. President, and uh, I just came to say goodbye. Well, goodbye, you know. Uh, and I, I brought you these photographs, and uh, thank you. And, and he just looks in there, and he sees, to Ayelet, and then the next one, to Michal, and then, and he started to weep. And Carter started crying, and he said, I had hoped to write, this is where your grandfather and I made peace in the Middle East. So he went back to his cabin to tell Sadat that his signing was off, and the phone rang, and Begin said he would sign. Um, history turns on unbelievably small details sometimes, and sometimes a little moment of humanity can make all the difference.